In a world where planet-threatening, civilization-ending, humanity-uniting movie tropes lie scattered throughout a sea of film, one disaster response expert, with the help of her plucky producer sidekick, will gather together a panel of experts to discuss. Wait, what? Why the f did they do that? That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Welcome to Disaster Peace Theater. Welcome to Disaster Peace Theater. I'm Anna, and I'm joined by the always hugging but never your face, Rev. Not entirely true. <laughs> Premiering in 2017, Alien Covenant was the second prequel to the Alien franchise following Prometheus. This movie went through a lot of changes before it started filming in New Zealand, from a script that was originally called Alien Paradise, to the first cut of the film being 2 hours and 23 minutes long, being cut down to barely over 2 hours. The story follows the crew of the Covenant, who are awoken by their ship's android Walter, played by Michael Fassbender, when the ship is struck by a solar flare on its way to Aurigai 6, a planet to be colonized by the 2,000 colonists and 1,140 cold storage embryos aboard the Covenant. Upon being awakened seven years too early, the crew hears strange communications from a previously uncharted planet, which according to their sensors is an even better colonization location than their current destination. That was fun to say. The crew decides to investigate this new planet, and everything that could go wrong does go wrong. Faces are hugged, chests are burst, and all manner of quarantine procedures are ignored. In the end, those lucky enough to survive are placed back into stasis, and as they drift off, they realize that their android Walter has been replaced by David, the android from Prometheus, whom has brought two alien embryos with him, which he places in cold storage presumably to be released upon the colony once it is established in seven years. And we're joined by my longtime friend, Russ Hall. Uh, we've known each other since we were kids and uh, served together in the Coast Guard. Russ, do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and your career? Sure. Uh, I recently retired from the Coast Guard. I was a uh, search and rescue helicopter pilot and uh, disaster response specialist for a bunch of the different hurricanes you've heard of over the last past uh, decade or so. Um, so, uh, I've been, I've been in the thick of things, in the middle of it all, and uh, intrigued to see how this goes. So one of the reasons I thought to have Russ on the show was very specifically that we have slightly different perspectives on a couple things that happened in this movie due to the fact that he was the one on the helicopters, like flying the helicopter, and I tended in my career to be the one in the command center sending the helicopter out to do the search. So at the very beginning of this movie, there's a scene where, where they send out an away craft, and... I was like, oh man, the moment they have comms problems, they should have come back. And when Russ and I were talking about it, we have different perspectives on that. I would think that the moment you have those comms problems from the SAR controller perspective, I don't like not having comms with my helicopter because if I don't have those communications, I don't know what's happened to them. And if I lose communications with them and something bad happens to them, now I don't just have the people I needed them to rescue, but now I've lost some of my own people. And that's like the worst thing that could ever happen. But Russ, you you brought up some interesting points about when you're actually doing these sorts of missions where there might be communication problems. Sure. Well, everything we've done in the helicopter and, and really aviation in general operates off of the principle of risk versus gain. So if you're out there 
searching for people that you knew were in the water and you're going out into a remote area where you know comms are kind of spotty, the gain overcomes the risk of not being able to talk. We want to be able to uh, actually get out there and, and get to the people and not just turn around because we can't talk to home base. Uh, and that happens a lot, especially in the Gulf Coast. Um, there's not a lot of population centers as you get closer to like Apalachicola between like Panama City and Apalachicola. Not a lot of big antennas. So you'll see a lot of dark spots where you're trying to find people on beaches and stuff. It happens all around the country, just where we've positioned our antennas. But we don't want to just turn around and go. Uh, we want to be able to get out there. And, and there's things we could do to mitigate. There's We can launch a fixed-wing aircraft to be cover. We can switch to a different frequency that helps with longer ranges, whether it's going to a high frequency or something like that. But it's never just straight turnaround, unless I'm just doing an area familiarization. I'm just showing people sites. And if I lose comms, yeah, probably my gain's not going to be there. Let's just go back because I don't know. You may have a higher priority mission for me to go on, so I need to be in contact with you. So risk versus gain. You know, it even goes back to like the Apollo astronauts. They're up in, up on their way to the moon. They lose comms. Are they just going to flip on the retros and come back home? No, they're going to at least slingshot around the moon. Maybe not land because there's a lot of other stuff they may not be seeing, but there's still a risk versus gain proposition that has to be discussed. And that's really a, a central theme of, I think, what we're going to be talking about is the risk versus gain. There's a lot of risks being taken for what kind of gain? Well, and when we're getting ready to do pretty much any mission in the Coast Guard, we do the green, amber, red analysis. It's like, is this green like, no problems, we've done it before, this is super easy. Amber, eh, we could have some problems here because of these particular risks. Or red, hey, there's a bunch of complexity here and a bunch of problems, you know, and you'll launch on an amber and you'll definitely launch on a green. A red, like like you just said, really comes down to does the benefit overrule the risks? In the civilian world, there's a little bit of what they call ROI, return on interest. It's kind of similar, like what you're going to invest in this, is it worth what you're going to get out of it? The difference is this usually involves people's lives. So for example, during Hurricane Katrina, you were operating in the high amber red area the whole time, weren't you? I would say yes. I mean, it's it's based on... Um you know, environmental factors. So like we're here within the Alien Covenant, we know they're losing comms because the environment is completely hostile. That's a that's a huge deal. And, and they do address it. Hey, they're, they're, it's going to mix up comms. So, okay. But like Katrina, it was, you know, the environment was hot. You know, the, the, as the storm had already passed, it was it was a nice sunny day, but it was hot as heck. And, and aircraft don't like flying when it's hot. It's just not as, not as dense of air. But um, there's uh, crew fatigue factors in because we were just flying nonstop. So we were starting to get tired. Uh, familiarity of the uh, the area. We had a lot of pilots that were coming in from all over the uh, the United States that were coming in to fly, and they don't know the city. They don't know when when the when the lights are out in the city, and there's a central part called the Central Business District that has a lot of how a lot of buildings that are bigger than one story that can reach out and grab you if you're not paying attention. Um, you know that that environment that factors into the environment side. So you know, comms was a huge issue for us in Katrina because there were none. We were communicating via line of sight back to home, but that barely got us five miles for the altitudes we were flying at. So it wasn't until the DOD was able to come in and provide oversight, oversight comms with uh, E-2s, P-3s, lots of fixed-wing aircraft with a lot of people aboard to handle different sectors of frequencies that we could finally communicate back. But we were still going out with a mission of go find people, pick them up, drop them off. And at least we could say, hey – we know that these people have, like, we haven't dropped a lot off a lot of people at, say, Zephyr Field. So go to Zephyr. And we kind of based that way, but our CO uh, knew there was a lot of risk out there, but there was also a lot of gain. We knew there were a lot of people out on, on rooftops and stuff. So that was where we could 
we, we not necessarily mitigate, we accepted the risk. You can either spread out, transfer, accept, or mitigate any of that risk. We accepted it and we moved on. But we also are really big on updating that risk as we go. Like you said, you launch in an amber. It may not be an amber by the time you're done, or it could absolutely get to a red by the time you're there because of whatever's going on. So you're still trying to figure out how to mitigate that. You're talking as a crew. And we had a lot of great crew interactions during that. And there was a lot of training that, that people took from that and exported it throughout the rest of the Coast Guard for how things were actually moving. But it was comms was huge for that. Katrina definitely changed the way the Coast Guard did a number of things. Um, what's interesting is you mentioned that one of the problems with the comms was the like that they talked about that there were going to be problems with the away ship and the comms. What's fascinating to me is um, after Russ and I originally talked about this, uh, we went and found the original script because this movie was originally called Alien Paradise. In the original script, there was actually a uh, an alien device creating an ionosphere around this planet to intentionally block it in. It wasn't just a storm. It was clearly intentional. That is such mm-hmm. a difference between, mm-hmm. oh, hey, it's a storm versus, wow, this ionosphere is artificially intense. Um, that's a huge difference. I definitely would have bumped that mission from amber to red if it was an intentional ionosphere. Well, but you got to think, though. With the level of technology they depicted, it, it, it seemed to be very relatable to ours, right? We didn't see a whole lot of extra sensors and stuff like we're talking about Star Trek and subspace and stuff. Would they have been able to actually detect that it was caused by a device? Who knows? Oh, like until they found the device? Right. Then they see it and they go, oh, holy heck, somewhat like they're trying to keep this in play. That would have added a little bit more craziness to the on the ground piece because all of a sudden now this is arbitrary. Now I've got someone working against me. That's even worse. Yeah. Although you just mentioned Star Trek. And I would point out, they did pull one Star Trek thing. The freaking captain goes on the away team. Well, okay, we'll say that was original series. Yes, yeah. They pulled a Shatner. They let the freaking CO go. The CO never goes on the small boat. Only when it's a safe mission. They never. The CO never goes out on the really, really risky stuff. Reminder, my experience was usually in the Bering Sea. If you've ever seen the deadliest catch, that's the stuff I was getting on a small boat for. So the CO definitely didn't get on the small boat to go check out the crabbing vessels. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. No, that was always that was always the minions. That was always the boarding officers and boarding team members and the ones that are going to go sweat through their coveralls. But, you know, talking about ships, that brings up one of the next points that I really flinched at. Even before they launched this away ship, all of the crew are married couples. Now, I understand having the colonists that are, you know, back in the freezer. Um, I can understand them being married. You want them to get to the planet, already have established relationships, mating, da-da-da, fill the population, blah. Fine, fine. But you would never, ever, ever have married couples being in the chain of command or in the crew of a ship like that. And we see throughout the movie, there are a lot of problems with this particular thing. And that's the problems we see are exactly why we don't let married couples be together. And actually, after World War II, siblings aren't allowed to be on the same ship during times of war because of the Sullivan brothers who all five of them were on a ship together and they died. But like the married couple thing, look how many dumb decisions we see. Well, and you can see too, as a colony ship, when were they expecting to wake up? When they were in orbit of the planet they were supposed to land on. I mean, they were supposed to be all the way at the end. And of course, you got that big wave of, of stuff coming through, damages the ship, and, and Walter's got to wake everybody up. Great. But you can see why the decision starts to make a little bit of sense when they're trying to get to home. But at the same time, if you if you do have those, then there, there's usually strict protocols. You know, we saw a lot of strict protocols in previous Alien movies, to include the first one where 
hey, it was a search and rescue mission. It's a couple of the guys didn't want to go and they were told they're going to have to forfeit their stuff because there was a, this strict protocol that Wayland put together for how their ships uh, operated. Maybe you have the spouses in one watch rotation, like, you know, one spouse is in watch one, the other spouse is in watch two, and they're never awake at the same time. But you have to, you, there is no way to not have emotional decision making when it is your spouse, be it you're angry at them or you're happy with them. You can't have spouses. And so if they were going to do that anyway, they needed to have a plan because, you know, okay, they didn't expect to have to wake up. Well, there was clearly a protocol to wake them up if something went wrong. So why couldn't there be a protocol that spouses are never awake at the same time if something goes wrong? There have been other sci-fi movies and TV that have kind of gone with that idea. Uh, One of the most notables is Oblivion with Tom Mm -hmm. Cruise. He's awake. His wife is back in the sleeper, not part of the crew. They find something, but they don't wake her up. They've woken mm-hmm. up the co-pilot. They, the pilot and the co-pilot got woken up and they're dealing with the stuff. So mm-hmm. the protocol should have been dictated to get the most effective team to assess what's going on with this damage. And I doubt that they would have put the married couples on the rolls like that. It would have been yep. the chief engineer. You know, and they would, the, if it had been one chief engineer, honestly, like you said, there should have been shifts. There should have been two chief engineers balanced back and forth. But there would have been some sort, again, back to the protocol. They would have had some kind of thing that would have eliminated a lot of that drama. But as you, as we were th- talking about earlier, you know, there was a lot of stuff here that we saw, you know, the, the, everything that didn't make sense seemed to be that it came from a different place. Like the story could have been uh, connected in a much different way. So this was sort of a, a way to infuse drama. One of the interesting things to me was it wasn't an SOS call. When you and I have been talking about when you send a ship or stuff and you were talking earlier about the gain, the gains we were usually looking at in the Coast Guard was literally saving people's lives. In this case, she's singing. It could have been an echo from somewhere else. It could have been a sound wave coming from somewhere else. She doesn't give an SOS. In the original script, she actually says, here is where I'm going. Please follow me. This planet looks good. You know, I need people. She taught the the original script. What she said could be interpreted as an SOS, as a I'm alone, come help me. To me, that would change my decision-making process once I got to the planet because someone singing isn't asking for help and it could have been an echo. But if they're saying, I'm going to this planet, please come find me, that's an ask for help. And it becomes a search and rescue mission instead of just, oh, hey, look, here's a cool planet mission. True. I mean, it's it still stems from they're on a colony mission. They've got 2,000 people, 1,100 embryos, and they're trying to make it to this other planet. So you got to wonder what kind of information would you need to deviate from that mission with all these other people on board? You know, And, and like you said, the sensors, it's like how many sensors and cameras and stuff do we have on Mars? And we get someone going by there and be like, actually, it looks like Venus is going to be a lot better. It's like, dude, we've been staring at Mars for decades and getting all this imagery from it with all these probes we've had. Keep going to Mars. But if someone says, no, 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 I'm going to go to Venus. And then they get there and it's a complete toxic waste dump. Like, are you kidding me right now? But it still comes down to what would you have needed to deviate? And something like that, it would still be, again, back to that company protocol thing. What would they have to do? How much data could she have provided on that? Now, there's that big wave of electromagnetic stuff that wave that came through could have deviated any kind of signal, whatever. So the fact that they didn't, you know, they, they think it came from there. It, it's how much they're trusting their instruments on this one. When mm-hmm. all these other studies that were pushing them, the original planet had already been conducted and they're just throwing caution to the wind and then putting religion onto, well, you know, this is divine intervention. We're here. And you know, their, their motivation was they just didn't want to go back into the, into the sleep couch because the captain was burned up. Well, 
You know why the captain was burned up? The wave came through and smacked it. Come on. You know, if you got to stay away for seven years, sure, it's going to suck. You know what, though? You wait a year and everyone's like, screw this. I want to go back to sleep. Ha <laughs> ha. Problem solved. Yeah. Problem staying solved. Welcome to Oregon 6. Along those lines of, you know, talking about them being out there and they've got all this information that they've been sent with. And then as they get closer to this planet, they get these readings and all of their instruments that they have on hand are now starting to tell them something else. You're talking about risk versus reward. Like at what point in in this just, I guess, in your experience, does that shift allow you to change your intention or your plan of this is what they thought. But now that I'm here, I see that it's different. Like, cause it's got me thinking about like, uh, we're going to talk about Armageddon later that like they have all these projections. And then when they get there, it's actually worse instead of better. And so how does that change your plan? Like at what point in that journey, do you, as the person, you know, heading that mission, get to make that choice of like, I have to rely on what I'm seeing here versus what I was told before I left. That happens quite a bit. I mean, especially within Coast Guard missions, you, you only get one one report. Next thing you know, it's so much worse than it was. So like you get a mm. report, oh, hey, my, my vessel's taking on water. The pumps are keeping up and I've got three people aboard. Dude forgot that he was running a charter for six more. So there's nine people aboard. And by the time you mm. got out there, that pump failed. Now they're completely in the water. Now you went from what could have been a manageable, hey, let's see if we could wait and we can deliver a pump to them. We can get more dewatering. We can just keep them company while a, sh- a boat or a ship comes in. And now I'm taking a helicopter that might be good for holding four people and trying to cram nine people in it. And, and mm-hmm. you, you, you have to roll with the punches. And there is, you know, we, we, we train in uh, a certain amount of uh, operational discretion and initiative into our crews that they need to know the limit of their abilities. You know, all of the mm-hmm. cr- airplane crashes and boat crashes People have exceeded their capabilities, whether it's going out into weather that you're not prepared for, aircraft, air or not. Surfers, surfing hurricanes. Exactly. You know, a brand new surfer going into Mavericks going, this shouldn't be that hard. It's just surfing. And next thing you know, they get rolled and they're going to get completely pummeled and they're not ready for it, right? They can't handle it. They don't know how to tuck and everything. So I think you, you roll with the punches, but there is still a go, no go. As soon as someone feels that they've exceeded the limitations or there's too much risk here, you got to look out for number one. You, you have to mm-hmm. make sure our crew comes back. The old adage was you can go out, but you don't have to come back. It's no longer applicable because we have much more modern systems. We have better communications. We have a lot more of a mm-hmm. layered defense. We can always say, hey, get a boat out there if we can. Um, you know, you come back to the movie piece. What kinds of things can, do they have to mitigate those factors? It got worse. What, what do they have to mitigate? I would have... Yeah. I would have thought, again, this is still their infusing drama so they can have a movie. Um, there still would have been a piece where a go-no-go decision would have been made, and it would not have been based on any kind of religion. And they look at what are the factors working for us, what's working against us. And if any of those things mm-hmm. are beyond capabilities or experience, you, you don't go. You, you can't risk those people because they're, mm-hmm. they're mission critical. That's why they're woken yeah. up in the first place. Literally, every, we can assume everyone that's awake is mission critical. Why chance them? Yeah. Mm. And so for me – had they kept her call as a more distress style call, in my mind, that pushes the the urgency to go where it's like, okay, we're going to say they decide, let's check out this planet because it looks better. And they start to have some of the comms problems because it's a rescue thing and they've heard another human voice. To me, that would have lent more weight to just going. Even if it was ambiguous. Mm-hmm. How many times have we launched on on what we call uncorrelated maydays where a distress signal is out, but they don't say where they're at. But yeah. I kind of got a, a line of my direction finder said it's kind of over here. So we, we'll launch someone out there. 
we're not getting a lot of credence behind it, but we're going to go and look anyway. So even just introducing ambiguity, not just her singing country roads. I mean, oh, okay. That's, At least pick a better song. You hear that on the radio, right? You hear that on the radio. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not launching for that. Okay. Someone's singing, get off the radio. I mean, imagine how much more like, you're talking about trying to instill drama into the movie. Imagine how much more dramatic this moment could be if instead of, you know, if we get rid of the idea of spouses, but you have this distress call, they go, they follow the distress call, they hit this ionic field and they find that there's a machine generating the field, that something has drawn them there with the distress call and is trying to cut them off from the outside world. That like, would be so That's cool. a horrifying moment as opposed to that moment of stress of, oh, my spouse is here and I have to worry about protecting them. Or Yeah. I'm a firm believer too, like horror movies. If you have a horror movie where bad things are happening to people doing exactly the right thing, it's so much worse. Everyone who's doing the exact right thing and it's still coming after him, still getting through, like, holy heck, that's way more suspenseful. Yeah, why Alien and Aliens hits so well along with the fact that it was like the the cinematography in them both is incredible and the cinematography in this one is beautiful it's filmed in new zealand the the you know it's beautiful scenery the ship is incredible but in alien and aliens they were doing the right things and got screwed anyway and right. and that does make it hit deeper. So okay, we've already mm-hmm. spent like the first half of this podcast, and we haven't even gotten to the yeah. surface of the planet yet. Like <laughs> that tells you. And so the thing for me with this movie is, I love the idea that we created an android who was so humanoid, who was so human that he goes mad and creates our own destruction. Like that cycle there that we created the thing that created our own destruction. I love the symmetry of that. I think it's a great story and it could have been told so well. In the original script, uh, Shaw, there was actually a, the, the bit before the, we get to the ship, um, they actually had Shaw survive and they showed like what uh, Shaw was from the first movie. She was the survivor in the first movie. They saw what she and uh, David went through and what he did to her. And then in this movie, when they get to the planet, they actually find her Wayland gear. So they know that mm. Wayland knew about this planet and about her. Man, they made these punch ups and they're just removing all the like gristle that could be the actual drama yeah. of the movie. So they find they find you know how they find the ship. Well, they find the ship and they see the bodies of the engineers instead of where they finally see them when David rescues them and they walk through that field of the blackened bodies, the engineers that were on the ship are actually like cast out the back down that hillside and so they see this carnage and they find her Wayland uniform and that's when the main woman character Griffin says We got to go. Nope, we're done. Let's go. Mm -hmm. And she wants to head back immediately in that moment. And she's the planet's like uh, environmental climatologist, all this. She's the one who gets to say if this is the planet we stay on or not. And she says, no, but you're right. Mm -hmm. Had that Wayland helmet, had they found all of her gear and known that Wayland knew about this planet and didn't tell them whole different story. And the only reason why they went back to the ship was someone got sick. Not I mean, that would have been a way more compelling thing of like, let's leave. Let's talk real quick about this landing craft and the fact that they put the med bay where you would take people who had illness, something contagious, and they put it in the back of the ship where you have to run through the entire ship to get to the med bay. <laughs> and there's no external door to get into the med bay from outside of the ship. 
I mean, we all just went through and are still going through a freaking pandemic. And yet they would do this on a ship in the future where they are supposed to have all this additional knowledge. Like they just run through the whole ship. Most of the storms that I was a part of, you know, Katrina, Rita, Wilma, Ike, Ivan, Gustav, you name it, like a bunch of the name storms, there was always some sort of a hazmat component. There was, you know, Katrina, there's a lot of oil and stuff from refineries and stuff like that. So there was hazmat. And, and one of the first tenets of hazmat is if you've been in the zone, you've got to get to a warm zone where you can decontaminate, but you don't go through the the clean areas to get to this, like you know, anything you've yeah. gone through is now contaminated. So mm-hmm. literally, as soon as they open up the doors, the whole thing's contaminated, and they have to walk them all the way back through the sick bay. I get that; that's that's the design. But for a a ship that was supporting colonies, that mm-hmm. it was highly likely someone was going to get sick and need to be quarantined and stuff like that. That's, I mean, let's look at the pandemic now. We would have if if you're deploying any kind of thing, you're going to have to keep that in mind with a COVID perspective. How you know whether it's just keep them locked in the hotel or whatever. A friend of mine recently was saying that they went and rewatched uh, the movie and they've like, they always knew that I like just, it drove me nuts that they land on the planet and they get off that ship dressed like they're there for an REI photo shoot. They have no masks, nothing to protect their mucous membranes, nothing. And not near as much information about that planet as they did as their home planet. Yeah. It's like, I don't care what your computer said. You always have to assume there's something that is in the air, like you don't know if there's like a silicone based whatever that could get you. And so you'd be at least wearing a mask filtration. And the friend was saying that until COVID, they kind of rolled their eyes at me when I would say that. But now that they've lived through having to wear a mask and the fear of that invisible virus, they watched that scene and they were like, fuck, that's totally right. Why would you do that? It's like, why wouldn't they say that after they watch any one of the versions of War of the Worlds? Or, or, or M. Night Shyamalan's signs where the, the, the water hurt them. You know, like, we are now the aliens on this environment. So why aren't we taking the precautions like, you know, the War of the Worlds guys should have? Yes, you could breathe oxygen, but holy hell, if there's not some other predator that's going to come through. You, you can't go swimming in tropical climates without worrying about something swimming up, whatever, and infecting yeah. you. You know, I mean... <laughs> And that's a known thing to the tribes, but you're the new guy going in, you're going to get sick. So then we have this away team. And when they split up the away team, they they leave two people behind when the one woman wants to like scoop mud or whatever it was. She was scooping up the mud. They leave her with one person. The group was big enough to leave her with two people. You never leave two people. You leave three. That's so that if one gets injured, one can stay with the injured person and one can get help. Or two people are more likely to help one person. You don't ever do two. It's a redundancy thing. And what the heck was he doing going off to poop in the woods? I mean, didn't he go before they launched? I mean, come on. That's like space travel 101. I mean, it's travel 101. You're going to do a road trip to a planet. Better (laughs) better take a poop and a pee before you go. But beyond that, you're now exposing another open membrane orifice to whatever could get in there. And he's smoking. You're in an environment where you don't know anything about anything around you. You're going to be as careful as possible. And exposing your anus to the ground is a bad idea. Well, and I want to say he did something to pop in the bubbles because he at least saw the dust. And he was like, yeah, whatever. But yeah. um, it's like, it's like I see those. I'm giving them a, a wide, wide berth. I, I don't know what's in there. I don't need to know what's in there. Like, I'm going to give, like, especially if I'm on a foreign planet. Yeah, the other guy does that too. He leans his face like, what, two inches from the thing and goes, poke. There is precedent from Prometheus with the guy that went, you know, the little the little uh, snake thing pops out and he's like, oh, hi, little snake thing. You're like, are you kidding me right now? The, the first extraterrestrial life and you're just be like, oh, hello, as opposed to, 
I need to back away. It might try to kill me. Like, come yeah. on. Well, and that's the thing is on earth, I wouldn't poke something with my face close to it. Like here <laughs> on earth, I wouldn't poke something. So now we've got the pooper in the woods who is clearly sick and she's bringing him back to the ship. And she doesn't even put on a face covering when she sees he's clearly sick. She doesn't put on gloves. She does not put on a face covering. She does nothing. Those are standard operating procedures here on Earth today. You cover up. She doesn't. She gets him back to the ship, runs him through the ship, and then she's in quarantine with him. And they do lock. Now, in the original script, the other woman does not open the door ever. She leaves it locked even after all the alien stuff has come out and the alien breaks out. In this movie, she has the gun, she opens the door and goes in to kill the thing. Well, and, and this goes back to, you know that literally all the steps, when, as soon as the guy got sick and was starting to run back, everything that happened in that ship would have been governed by protocol. They would have gone into quarantine protocol and they would have had all that stuff practiced, rehearsed, because they're going to be a colony ship. Like, holy hell. I mean- how much training do they give the astronauts that are going up in the, the SpaceX stuff, you know, the private guys? Enough to know not to push this button or it's going to open the thing or be a useful member of the crew. So these guys have all gone through a lot of training to fulfill their particular roles. And there are going to be certain drills, fire drills, quarantine drills. All those things are going to be well rehearsed before they ever mm -hmm. go on this multi-generational trip. And they're just going to run through like, oh my God, my God, my God, and just lose their minds. And like I said, in the original script... The woman in the quarantine sees the alien coming out and begs the second woman, please let me out, let me out, Ferris, the communications one who's married to Tennessee. We'll talk about Tennessee in a second, but she's married to Tennessee. She's the one out there. She doesn't open the door. It, she says, no, it's, it's quarantine. I can't open the door. She doesn't open the door. The other woman dies like she does in the movie we've seen. But then the alien, as aliens do in future movies uses acid and strength and gets out of the space anyway. That makes it more like the original alien universe and more believable because, you know, this movie Ferris opens the door after she's seen her friend sliced and diced by this white little fetus alien thing. And she runs into the room with her finger in the trigger guard and slips in blood when she runs in. And so then of course the alien gets out and what does she do? She shoots the armory and blows up the whole ship. That's back to the design of the ship, too. It's like, very rarely are there ships designed for guns to be shot inside. You know, we see that from airplanes. <laughs> right. if you do that and you're de decompressing everything. So mm -hmm. go back to the design of a colony ship. Would you have anything readily exposed that is completely flammable like that in the center of the ship? I mean, externals, sure. Keep it on the outside. You can jettison it real quick. That way you're, you can kind of guarantee if, you have, if your ship has an emergency, it don't go boom. Um, you see it a lot of times with, you know, we have some helicopters that could drop their tanks and they have to go in and uh, emergency land to a, a beach or something. Pl uh, planes can dump a lot of gas. Um, heck, the solid ro rocket boosters jettisoned off the shuttle. The ground, that was just normal everyday business. But things that go boom, we don't like them to be attached permanently or in a place where we can really be at risk for them. And then here you go, person's coming through, slips, trips, and blows her whole ship to kingdom come because... A, she couldn't exercise proper trigger discipline. <laughs> and B, we designed the ship even more poorly to say, yeah, we get the whole quarantine thing, but uh, explosives, yeah, they're everywhere. So now we have the ship has blown up. So clearly comms are going to be an even bigger problem now. And the other group is running back. Well, remember, 
after after that goes down, they get the little the little things start coming at them. You know, the aliens, like including the one that just sprouted from the ship. David comes and gets them, takes them to the structure, and now they're relatively safe. At least David says they are. So, okay, what do they do while they're in that structure? Spread out. What herd mentality? You kind of you kind of pull together, especially when you know that people have already died, both by action and inaction. So you have to figure out like the first rule would be what happened. You start assessing where you're at. You start doing that risk versus gain. Where do we stand? Mm-hmm. What do we need to do and go? They're just spread all the kingdom come. Well, and also my very first priority would be I want to get on the absolute highest point with the comms equipment I have and immediately start with a rescue beacon. And it takes them a little bit to figure it out. So not only have they spread out, but like the one woman goes off by herself to like wash her face. They continue to make really bad decisions. Then we now go back up to the spaceship where we have Tennessee. He makes some interesting questionable decisions too. He takes the main ship, even after Mother, which is, by the way, a creepy name for an AI on a ship, even after Mother tells him, hey, we shouldn't do this with the ship, he does it anyway. He takes the ship down into the ionosphere. He takes it low to try and hear them. What does he take? He takes one of the landers that are meant for drilling. He takes that down to rescue them. He makes a bunch of decisions that are not in the best interest of the colonists themselves. Well, a lot of that's how, you know, themes we've already mentioned. He was married to Ferris, who ended up blowing up the little ship. Mm-hmm. I guess they had told him that she was gone. So he, he had to overcome that because there was a private private calm there. But then that, that sort of ingrained in him, like, now the rest of these people are family. He needs to get them up at all costs. And that's where he, the source of his decisions come back. So a, a normal thing would have still been figuring out risk versus gain. They should all be quarantined. So how adamant are you to get them back up on a ship that has, you know, 3,000 people in embryos? And you're bringing stuff that, like, there's been a, an event, a biological event, you know, however you want to slice it. And you're going to bring all these people back? You know, the, the one thing that kind of stuck out to me along with the quarantine elements is when you're out on rescue, when you're picking people up from hazardous situations, obviously there's that risk of exposing yourself to it as the one rescuing Mm -hmm. them. But then what about the protocol once you and that group arrive back at the base? You know, I'm, I'm jumping to the end of the movie, but the idea that, you know, they've now got these, these alien embryos and they're just, headed off. It's weird to me that no one else, like upon their arrival, will scan or inspect these people to make sure that nothing strange happened to them on this unexpected stop when they wake up. Like there's no diagnosis of the people after the event. That's a great pickup. Even for our crews that, you know, when we're, when our Coast Guard crews are out there flying and picking people up, there's always a risk we're going to pick up something communicable. Um, and, and there's been quite a few times where our guys have been, guys and, and gals have been exposed to meningitis. Um, there was a huge discussion. What was going to happen if, you know, when the Ebola virus was starting to make its way uh, across the ocean to us, and we we're starting to see more, more and more cases, what would happen if we we're requested to go in a, and hoist a person off of a ship that was suspected of having Ebola? You know, what kind of gear do we have to protect ourselves right now? Not much, but even if we do, what kind of monitoring are they put on? So we, we, a lot of our a lot of our pickups are injuries and, and people getting picked up out of the water and stuff. So not a lot of sick. Um, that's they, they usually are like on cruise ships. Sick people are usually able to stick it out to the next port call. They'll give them some sort of medicine, just put them to sleep, and, and they're good for another couple of days, and they'll make it in. Well, and there's uh, med bays, really good med bays on cruise ships. Yeah, like hospital style med bays, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's we're dependent on the information coming back to us from the hospitals, and a lot of times when it's something like meningitis, they're like. 
hey, your crew is exposed. Now, granted, they also, in that time, they went back home to their family. So now that exposure got huge. But we do try to keep at least a, a tick on that one. So when we're going out for a medical evacuation, we are trying to be a little bit more aware of what we're looking at. So we don't get authorized until a flight surgeon has been called and is consulted. So they under, we understand a little bit what's happening there. So here, it's already been briefed that something had happened. These guys all know. And, and for for myself as a former aircraft commander, had I known I picked someone up that was sick, I would have definitely said, hey, doc, we need to watch these four guys. Hey, guys, you know, let's let's go ahead and get at least checked up right now if we need to go get some swabs. Unfortunately, too many of these things require a couple of days at least to manifest before we can actually test positive for the stuff. Um, but we can get on monitoring, um, and, and that, that does happen. But like you, like we were talking about here, just because there was that event, I mean, the dude that had his, his face half melted because of the acid. So they basically just kind of stuck that plastic polymer on his face, and they're kind of like, okay, you're good. Like, there's a lot more aftercare that goes into that. And then they start not feeling so well. Why, why didn't they get like a chest x-ray? That would have been the first thing that I would have done. Yeah. As soon as you're not feeling good. Oh, a full scan on everybody. I don't care if you're feeling well or not, you're scanning you. And, and we're seeing in in this time frame, those scans are, are so easy. I mean, there was in Prometheus, you had the one thing that could do everything. They just had to go to one bed and get a quick, are there any foreign entities here, you know? Well, here's the interesting thing I just realized, though, as, as you were talking. I don't think yeah. any of the people who survived actually ever saw the chest burst. Because the captain bursts down in the basement by the eggs. Lope gets hit in the face with acid, but he doesn't ever see a chest burster. And uh, Ferris saw the burst happen, but she died. Lope was the only one who would have seen the chest burst happen with the guy they were bringing back. So Lope's the only one of the survivors who saw the chest burst happen. Well, but Daniels in Tennessee found his body. Well, yeah, but that could have been an alien ripping him open because they wanted to eat his insides because we all know the good bits are on the inside. Yeah, they clearly don't have like a medical person who can do autopsy because it would have been clear that this came from the inside. This was not a something dug in. This was a something came out because there's no wounds on the Uh, exterior. But they didn't ever scan the body. But they should have. Yeah. (laughs) This movie is a whole bunch of, and they should have. But yeah, that's the thing that just dawned on me was when they went back. You know, and, and the other thing is, I do like the twist that the way these aliens ended up getting off the earth was because David switched place with Walter and she realized it just as she, you know, goes, you know, as he locks her in and she goes to sleep. Because that basically sets this colony ship up to be the beginning of the alien race. Now, fun fact, this movie did so badly in the box office and so badly in ratings, it can't. It was the reason the third prequel was canceled. It was going to be a trilogy. And I really think that had they left some of the details we've talked about in the show in, it would have been an easier sell to make a third. So if you were to solve the problems of this movie in three minutes, if this was going to be a three minute movie, what would you do to, to fix the problems that occur here? That one's, that one's actually pretty easy. Fix the ship, go back to bed. That's literally it. Like, (laughs) I mean, everything else, all the bad decisions, it it was just, they, they, they stopped concentrating on fixing the ship. They were all worried about going back to bed and they were up long enough to hear a signal and start making some really bad decisions. So everything boils back to Mm. them deviating from, their primary mission. Stay on mission. You're good. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Um, even after they heard the call, it would have been, cool, that's weird. We'll figure it out in the morning. Back to bed. We'll check that out after we establish new Earth. Yeah, stick to the mission plan. And then pretty much everything we've talked about would have made it a six-minute movie, a nine-minute movie, 
If you wanted it to be six minutes, the moment the aircraft was having some communication problems, turn around, go back. Once you get to the planet, the moment you have this, turn around and go back. Like there were so many pivotal moments where we could have made this a much shorter movie. But yeah, just go back to bed. Uh, Prometheus, which we don't talk about this season, we don't go over that one, was originally called Alien Engineers. And the whole point of it was supposed to be to show that humanity itself had been engineered and this whole idea that like, and if you think about it, that even makes this whole thing cooler because then it's, we were engineered, then we engineered our own destruction. And, you know, just kind of this whole idea of creating the next life is an interesting commentary, especially with what we're seeing in artificial intelligence and these these critical conversations that are happening now about AI and the future of AI and ethics and AI. Um, I think this could have been a really interesting commentary on that instead of ending up as a uh, what not to do. Well, and to your point of the, the cycle, seeing the cycles repeating, you know, we're seeing a lot of the themes uh, that are per- permeating current storytelling. You're seeing those themes in some of the Marvel things. Battlestar Galactica. That tells me everything I need to know about the three of us that she referred to Battlestar Galactica as current media. And we all went, mm, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we so old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And on that depressing note, Thank you for joining us at Disaster Peace Theater. This episode of Disaster Peace Theater, hosted by Anna Visneski, was edited and produced by Brandon Wentz, with intro by Dan Cruiser and Chris Hill. You can contact us, learn more about the hosts, and check out our merch store at disasterpeacetheater.wtf.